The New Testament reading is a long one. It's Acts 2, 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And, and how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them talking in our own languages, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying one to another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, Oh, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will Pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It is pretty wild that on my last sermon with you, it is uh, unmediated. There is no shield. I'm glad I got to get at least one in like this. Um, 
Well, again, good morning. I'm glad to be with you. My name is Matt. If you are new um, or if you are streaming online and new, I am the interim pastor here, and I finish up uh, next week. This is my last sermon this Sunday. Next week, I get to lead music, actually, which will be a blast. I want to begin uh, with the question, are you charismatic? Are you charismatic? And um, I don't necessarily mean, you know, do you have a compelling charm to you, or do you have that kind of personality that might make you a good politician or celebrity? Um, More, are you a charismatic? And you might know what I mean by that. You might not. Some of you are probably without a doubt thinking, um, this is a Presbyterian church, right? I came here because I wanted to go to a Presbyterian church, so no, I'm not a charismatic. Well, uh, Richard Foster, who's probably most known for writing a book called Celebration of Discipline, it's where he helps sort of reintroduce evangelicals to some of the historic, classic Christian spiritual disciplines like fasting, prayer, meditative scripture reading. Well, Richard Foster, he says, quote, there are no non-charismatic Christians. And that's simply because charis means grace. A charism is a gift. Charismatic, gift of the Spirit, those who accept the gifts. So there are no non-charismatic Christians. I mean, God is, of course, a gift giver. This is one of the unique things of the, the Christian story, that God is a good gift giver. Existence itself is a gift. The creation story is full of gifts. Life is given to creatures. Earth is given to humanity. When man is lonely, woman is given as partner and friend. And then they are invited to procreate, to continue making gifts called children, where both the means and the end is certainly a gift. And then Genesis draws our attention to the multitudes of gifts. Genesis 1.29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. Raspberries, olives, lemons, rosemary, garlic, mangoes, cacao, or cocoa, however You want to say it. It's what chocolate's made out of, right? That is a gift. And then a few chapters later, the animals are thrown in as well, right? As I have given you the green plants, I give you everything. Honey, duck eggs, cream, roast lamb, rainbow trout, filet mignon, everything. God is a gift giver and his gifts are good. But this isn't the story This isn't the case with all gods and their origin stories. Uh, You know, Hesiod and Homer, these first great poets of European civilization, for them, gifts are sort of two-sided. 
they're, they're tricky. They, some of them are even booby-trapped. Right? The gift of fire backfires. Prometheus steals one of Zeus's lightning bolts, throws it down so humanity can have fire, and then Prometheus ends up chained to a rock. He gets all sunburnt. Eagle pecks at his liver. Yikes. And then what about the gift of woman, Pandora, itself meaning all gift, that name? Well, it's a sort of Kalan Kakan, right? A beautiful evil. So woman brings both life, but also affliction. And her famous wedding present from Zeus, right? A jar or more known as a box, Pandora's box, right? He tells her, keep it shut. She doesn't. It releases pain, death, misery, pestilence. Or what about that giant horse given as a gift to the Trojans? Hiding, of course, an army inside and the city falls. And so Virgil famously says, Timeo Danaos et Dona Ferentes. I fear the Greeks and those who bear gifts. In these stories, gifts are certainly ambiguous, ambigu- ugh, ambiguous at the least. It's proverbial within their stories. Gifts, uh, you never know if you really want to accept it. But God's gifts, by contrast, are unequivocally good. Creation, according to Genesis 1, right? It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. The garden is a paradise. Work is good, sex is good, marriage is good. Despite Adam's Promethean efforts to spin the fall as if it were somehow a problem of the gift and the giver, right? He says, he says the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, so that's why I ate it. The problem is that these gifts are tricky. No, it patently wasn't. There's no Trojan horse gifts in the Garden of Grace. And later on in the story, the rainbow guarantees goodness forever. The covenant with Abraham concerns the blessing of the entire world. And if you read on in the Old Testament, yes, there's plenty of twists and turns and ups and downs, but it results in the goodness of the promise. The law is good. It revives the soul. The land is good. It's flowing with milk and honey. The temple is good. It's called the joy of the whole earth. There are, again, no Trojan horses, no beautiful evils, no jars of death here, no secret miseries hidden in the small print. When God gives, it is for the blessing of everybody. And so today, we are charismatics. We celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. This as I said, is my last sermon to you as your interim pastor. And so my final words to you that I want to leave you with are simply this, say yes to the Spirit. Say yes to the gift 
of the Spirit. There is no church without the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why on Pentecost Sunday we celebrate it as the birthday of the church. This yearly celebration of when the Spirit was sent to fill the church and she was created. And now as individuals and as a community, you can say yes or no to the Spirit. You can, as Paul talks about, fan the flames. You can stoke the fire or you can quench the Spirit. So, my pastoral plea to you is to say yes. There's three um, lies that I know I often buy into. Maybe you do sometimes as well. And the Spirit actually seeks to subvert these lies. Sameness, balance, and separation. And these lies, like any good ones, they're sneaky, they're subtle. They lie below the surface oftentimes. We wouldn't consent to them and say, of course I believe this, but they're often there. And the first lie, sameness, right? It's better to be with people who are the same as us. I buy into that quite often, whether it's the same age category the same family structure. I want people who have a young kid like I do. Um, the same, any number of things. Ethnicity, the same gender. I just want to hang out with men. The same whatever it is. It's better to be with people who are the same as us. The second lie, balance. The best we can do, hope for is for good and evil to at least be balanced. For our vices to at least be balanced out by our virtues. And then the third lie, separation, God is far away, and he is unbreachably separated from us. Yet, when a community repeatedly says yes to the Spirit, over time, those lies are subverted, and three things begin to happen. The Spirit creates a community of the unlikely, the Spirit creates a community of abundance. And third, the Spirit creates a community of deepening union with God. First, the Spirit creates a community of the disparate. He unites the unlikely. Acts 2, 1 through 8 again. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then the text goes on to list all these 
different people groups that Loreen did wonderful pronouncing, especially on short notice. There's all sorts of room for error in those pronunciations there. But they list all these, and it says it's every nation under heaven. Clearly, it's not every nation that exists in the whole world, but in the ancient Near East, it might as well have been. It's people from all over coming together. And the Spirit, the Spirit is described in metaphors. Right? The text says, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And divided tongues as of fire, as if they were fire. And the author of Acts is Luke. And in his gospel, in Luke 3, 21 through 22, it says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Luke, uh, tradition as it is a medical doctor, skilled in observation and the precision of language. But when Luke describes the Holy Spirit, the best examination he can give is with metaphor. The Holy Spirit is like this. It's as if this was happening. The very nature of the Holy Spirit is uncontainable, even within language, and elusive. He is, after all, spirit. And because we cannot box the spirit in precisely, he's able to speak to different cultures in meaningful ways. Because no one language or culture can clearly and completely lay hold on and define the spirit. So the spirit can speak to different cultures in ways that are meaningful, uniting difference, without destroying it. Something only the Spirit can do. And again, at this sound, verse 6, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? language. So the Spirit could have just spoken one new universal language that everyone could understand. I mean, if you're going to do something miraculous, you could have just done that. Just create a new language that from now on, this is what everyone understands, everyone speaks, that's it. It's the best one, don't worry about the others, forget about them. You could have made everyone understand whatever singular language was spoken before Babel, even. But that's not the case. Somehow everyone hears their own native language. Ethnic distinctiveness was not overrun. And the church, a community of the unlike, is born. And this has always been the witness of the scriptures, Now at Pentecost, it's actually happening, but it's always been the sort of trajectory, the way things were meant to go. Here's just a couple Old Testament prophecies that point in this direction. 
Zechariah 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Isaiah 19.25, the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. And later in Isaiah 56, verse 7, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called what, a house of prayer for all nations. And it isn't just where the old prophecies are pointing. It's where the future rests as well. In Revelation 5, 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And two chapters later, Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Again, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, apparently there'll be different languages still in heaven, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But again, if you're like me, you might naturally want to be around people like you. I want to be around people like us. People who like us and people who like what we like. It's easier. feels safer. It's more approachable. I know I'll be understood better if I'm around people who are like me. But the Spirit brings together the unlikely. This is essential to the nature of the church. The Holy Spirit subverts this push that we have towards sameness. How does the Spirit do this? Well, often the Holy Spirit will place you alongside the stranger, someone who is strange to you, a person you never would have chosen to be in community with, given your own preferences. And what will the Spirit do? The Spirit always leads to Christ. So the Spirit will take you both to the foot of the cross. If you keep reading Acts chapter 2, what we read quite a bit of but not the whole of, you'll see that Peter preaches this powerful sermon about the death and resurrection of Christ. And it's there that people are united. It's on the foundation of of the cross that God's countercultural community, the community of strangers, is built. For here, 
And only here can the sin that separates us from each other be decisively healed. Only in this way will diversity be saved from divisiveness, difference from confusion. Only in this way will the variety God longs for actually flourish because we can both come to the foot of the cross together. So will you say yes to that gift of the Spirit, to the gift of the Spirit bringing the unlikely together? Because it's not going to happen in the church if it doesn't happen in your life. We don't just all of a sudden come together and boom, what we hope for in the church just happens if it's not being practiced in our life. So this week, I encourage you in your prayer, ask the Spirit to bring about unlikely relationships in your life. You can pray, Holy Spirit, by your power, let there be meaning and understanding where there was only confusion and divisiveness. Amen. Second, the Spirit creates a community of abundance. The Spirit generates access. Now, in any biblical act of creation that we see, the Spirit is present and active. This is why since the ninth century, the church has been singing, Veni Creator Spiritus. Come, Creator Spirit. The Spirit is creating. This is why we read in the very beginning, in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. This is why when Israel creates their first tabernacle in Exodus 31, the Spirit of God is there. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. This is the first time we hear that language in Scripture. Filled with the Spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. The Spirit is generative and creative. This is why the birth of Jesus is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, Luke talks about this in verse 1. He tells Mary... You're going to have a child. She asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Spirit of God is creative. And as a child of God, that same Spirit lives in you being excessively creative creates more than enough. I love that some of the onlookers in this story, they thought that the first Christians were drunk. 
They thought they were drunk. Acts 2, 12 through 15. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But other mockers, others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. With sweet wine. Translates to. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning, is his response. One way to understand drunkenness is simply a, a, a good thing, in this case wine, taken to an excess, an excessive amount. Too much wine, basically. And this literal drunkenness on wine is, is against the desires of God. But there is a, a spiritual, a, a Holy Spirit principle to it that Ephesians 5 talks about. Paul says in verses 18 to 20, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And from that place of excess, you will do what? It'll pour out and you will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The excess will pour over into thanksgiving. You will be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Spirit came upon those first believers at Pentecost, it was excessive. And while our experience with the Spirit may not be the same sometimes, right? It's not going to necessarily feel ecstatic, at least not all the time. Paul admonishes us to be filled with the Spirit to the point that we overflow in music making, in praise, in prayer, in a sort of holy creativity that's shared with one another. And there's that lie that easily slips into our spiritual life. And that's the lie of balance. I mean, a lot of people might say, well, life is all about balance, right? And it sounds really wise. I've probably said it before. But there's something about Pentecost that uh, pushes back on that, subverts it. It's easy to think that God is mainly in the business of restoring balance to the world. So he matches X amount of evil with X amount of good. X amount of wrongdoing with X amount of punishment. It's balanced. But behind this, needless to say, lurks an image of God as supremely balanced, as flawlessly well-adjusted. Nope, when the Spirit comes upon the apostles, onlookers think they are drunk. They are the opposite of flawlessly well-composed. They are intoxicated with the Spirit. They have imbibed far too many pictures of God. 
the New Testament witness isn't one of balance. It's one of abundance, of excess. In Revelation, thank God, we read of a future that vastly surpasses the Garden of Eden. Evil has not been balanced out. It's been defeated by an exceedingly greater love. A future not of lifeless equilibrium, but of an infinitely vigorous and uncontainable praise. This is because the God that's animating it all is one whose inner Trinitarian love spills over into a world of boundless grace. This is a God who provides 180 gallons of wine to this wedding in Cana, right? His first miracle. They might have just needed four or five bottles. 180 or 150, depending on how you convert the other things, but gallons of wine, an absurd amount. All they needed couple extra bottles. This is a God who feeds thousands with just a few loaves of bread and fish. And then he has the absurdity to sort of overdo it, and they have extra baskets of food. Surely if you can do a miracle to create stuff, you can do your math correctly. Jesus didn't have to provide extra, but he does This is a God who refuses merely to resuscitate Jesus back from the dead. Restoring him to life only to die again. That would certainly be an amazing miracle. People would still follow him. But God gives him a new uncontainable life that death can never touch again. And it is this God who now pours out his spirit so that we can enjoy here and now a foretaste of the abundant future already previewed in Jesus. So when we receive that same spirit as a gift, the church becomes a community of abundance. We become a place of abundant financial resources where needs can actually be met, where people in our communities who don't have can have by the grace of Jesus. A place of abundant beauty and creativity can actually offer good things to our community and world. And a place of abundant life. And again, This isn't going to just happen in the church if it's not happening in your life. So this week, maybe in prayer, you can ask the Spirit to show you His creative power and show you that in God, you actually have more than enough because it's so easy, and I'm preaching to myself here, to think there's not enough And if things are going well enough, there might be just enough. But in Christ, there is more than enough. And when we actually live into that truth, it changes the way you will interact with people, with your money, with the things you have, with your time. And that's how we become the church. You might pray, Holy Spirit, by your power, let me believe and live as if there is more than enough. 
Create in me a life of excess, of abundance, of more than enough that I can give freely of my resources, my creativity, and my life. Amen. And lastly, the Spirit creates a community of deepening union with God. A community of union. Communion. And maybe you're familiar calling this meal the Lord's Supper or perhaps Eucharist. Still, you've probably heard it at least referred to as communion. Do you ever wonder where, where do we get that from? It's not a word that's common in our, in, our, in our parlance today. So where do we get that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 17, Paul says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Communion is participation. Um, the word there that Paul uses in the Greek is koinonia. And, and it means fellowship, sharing, partnership, communion, participation. Communion is about union with God and others. It's about entering into the relationality of the Trinity. Entering in to that relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and participating. But do you ever wonder, how is it that we participate or are united with Christ when He is bodily absent? The, the Christian faith says that Christ has ascended to the Father, that he's at the right hand of the Father. So that means he's not here. And of course, if we believe in a, in a physical incarnated Jesus, we can look around and obviously say, of course, he's not here. What's crazy is that Jesus, <clears throat> he tells his disciples uh, that it's actually better for them that he leaves, that he's not physically here anymore. I mean, imagine telling that to your spouse or your child or a close friend. It's better for you that I not be here. I've tried that as a breakup tactic in college. It'd, be, it'd actually be better for you if I, you know, it doesn't work well. But Jesus says in John 16, 7, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate or the helper he's speaking about the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now it's better for Jesus to leave bodily because his body is particular. Like all human bodies, it can only be in one place, in one time, with a limited amount of people. Right? So while you might get to be in his presence at one particular moment, if you're lucky, that's it. It's limited. And so 
he sends the Holy Spirit that is universal. The Holy Spirit falls and fills on all those who come to Christ. His presence is with all of us all the time. That's good. That's good news. It is this Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, that makes Christ present to us in the bread and the wine. It is this Spirit that makes communion possible. And so, perhaps this week, you will seek that union with God by the presence of the Spirit, knowing that the Spirit is closer to you than your very breath. You are never alone. And this morning, my prayer is this, that by the presence of the Holy Spirit, you would grow in union with Christ. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, this morning, we say yes to you. We consent to your movement excuse me, to your presence in our lives. We invite you to fall afresh on us this morning and fill us with your power and your presence, Lord. Would you form us into a community of beautiful difference, of creative excess, and of deep union with Christ. Lord, I have seen glimpses, pieces of this in this church already. I know that you're already working. I've seen people um, give in excess of what you have given them. I've seen people in relationships that don't make sense, friendships that are clearly because your spirit is uniting them and making it possible for them to be in friendship. Lord, I have seen people with deep union with you. And so I know that you are at work And I affirm that, Lord. And I just ask for more of it. I just ask that this community would be so evidently marked by these things. To the glory of your name. Amen.